Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing and all of our other podcasts over at blisterreview.com. And per usual, we are broadcasting this episode from the Gunnison Valley of Colorado, and I would like to personally invite you to come spend some time in our vast amounts of wide open spaces and do some running or hiking or biking or elliptic going, which you will learn more about in this very episode on our amazing network of trails here in Gunnison and Crested Butte. Now, this week, our guest is Amelia Boone. And while Amelia probably needs no introduction, as you will clearly see in this conversation, she is far more multidimensional and fun and interesting and transparent and vulnerable than the types of people who are typically famous for their absolute dominance in a particular sport. So Brandon Leonard and I spoke a few days ago with Amelia about that dominance in obstacle course racing, and we also talk about her transition to long-distance running and racing. We talk about mental health and what the last year has been like since Amelia opened up about her eating disorder. And we also talk about the fast-growing sport of elliptigoing, and Amelia is clearly the face of this sport slash activity slash thing. And if all of that wasn't enough for you, we actually open things up with a riveting conversation and discussion that I will not spoil for you here, but I do still maintain that Amelia and Brendan are just simply wrong about this one. Anyway, see what you think, and I hope that you enjoy and appreciate this conversation as much as I did with the remarkable Amelia Boone. And so with that, we will let Brendan Leonard get us started, and here we go. Amelia Boone, thanks for coming on our little jogging podcast, Off the Couch. How are you? I am great. Thanks for having me on. I thought jogging was a dirty word. Are we a jogging podcast now? I'm all right with that. I think it's funny and self-deprecating. A yogging? <laughs> We're a yogging. We consider ourselves a yogging media outlet. There we go. As of 12 seconds ago. <laughs> I actually, I don't know the definition of jogging, but uh, you're coming to us from your new house that you just moved into like, what, a week ago in Golden, Colorado? Yes, like two days ago. How psyched are you to be... At the base, are you right around the base of like North Table Mountain? You can run. I am. I am. I get, I can hop out my back door and hop onto trails. First house I've ever bought. Um, and my like big requirement was just like trail access. I was like, if it's more than a mile away from a trailhead, I don't want it. Um, so that was, had a very short list of requirements. <laughs> that's a pretty, that's pretty bold. I mean, I mean, you gotta be golden, evergreen, yeah, in the in that neighborhood, and that's that's good. Good for you. That's awesome. There was a a couple of summers ago. There was like rattles of like a. I remember them referring to it as a ball of rattlesnakes on top of of North <laughs> Table. Like I've run into quite a oh, few. God. On yeah, like Green Mountain Centennial yeah. Cone is the worst place for me. But 
I, after I heard about the ball of rattlesnakes, I was like, I'm cool. I'm cool not going up there for a little while. Yeah, you know, I have to say, so living in California for so many years, I got really used to mountain lions because that there are a lot of mountain lions everywhere in the Bay Area. And people are like, are you scared? And I'm like, no, because if a mountain lion is going to kill you, like you're never going to see it coming. It's just like your time is up. But for some reason, snakes scare the crap out of me. So I saw my first rattlesnake a few weeks ago on North Table. And I was like, oh my God, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Because it was like stretched out across the trail and I didn't want to hop over it. So I just turned around. I was like, well, okay, run's done. (laughs) Can we pause for a second just on your death by mountain lion theory? (laughs) Yes. Because I'm not sure I've ever associated like a quick and painless and easy (laughs) death with a mountain lion attack. Are you, where are you getting your info on this? It's like nature's guillotine, basically. <laughs> it's not, I mean, it's not, it doesn't come from personal experience from anyone, clearly. I would like to think, you know what, the bear attack, like you're going to see the bear coming. Like if the bear is pretty slow. A mountain lion, they're just stealth. So if they're going to kill you, like you're not going to see, it's probably a pretty painful death. But like, at least you're not going to have the anticipation before it attacks you. I know I'm with I'm with you too. I, I think that's exactly how it ha- like you don't have a choice, right? You're not able to right. be like I'm going to try to fight this thing off. And it, no, it wasn't there that there was a guy in Colorado who didn't yeah. he kill a mountain lion with his bare hands? Yeah, and it, it, there's been a couple of those over the years. I think a guy in Tucson killed him with like a geologist's hammer at one point. But I think you don't have that good a chance to be honest with you. But like, no, for a while I ran with a pocket knife. I remember when I first moved to the Bay Area, and then after a while I was like. What am, what is good as a pocket knife going to do against a mountain lion? <laughs> so I just stopped. <laughs> kind of resigned your fate. Well, okay. This does not seem to me like a settled issue on uh, how it goes. I agree with you that you probably are not going to be aware that an attack by a mountain lion has begun. Right. On you. I think the next like 10 to 30 minutes are real bad. absolutely i mean positively but i would for some reason mountain lions just scare me less than snakes even though your chance of surviving a rattlesnake is way higher so yeah but it's miserable like you know inexpensive so i don't know i think that i would rather because if the alternative is like you know you're gonna die yeah but it's then very quick that's like say the captain on the airplane is like, folks, I have really bad news. Right. We've lost our engines, and in 20 minutes, we're done. Yeah. Like, I'll take that version. I've got 20 minutes to think about my life, you know, to reflect on things. But the actual impact, it's we're done fast. Mm. Like, it's over fast. I think I'd rather have that. You and Brendan seem to be on team. (laughs) I don't want to know it's coming, but I don't care about the 30 minutes of being mauled. So I I don't think I'm with you guys on this one for what that's worth. Plenty of of worse ways to die, I think. Is this the podcast uh, on the worst ways to die? I don't know that. Maybe. Anyway, so Amelia, you did not grow up running it's not like you were you didn't run track or cross country in high school right no. I think you played soccer and softball in Lake Oswego and in Portland so you have a very interesting entry into the world of running because you're now doing ultra marathons but you come at it from a very different angle than I think probably most people but I guess maybe more so in the last few years so you played soccer and softball went to college 
went to law school, became a lawyer, and then, correct me if I'm wrong on the story, but a coworker at the law firm you worked at said, hey, you should check out this Tough Mudder thing when the first Tough Mudder was happening in mm-hmm. 2010. Is that right? And yeah. you're like, oh, sure. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? I very much uh, growing up was like, why would anybody run for fun? You know, or like, or I never understood also the idea of like paying money to run a race because like you could just go out and run a 5K by yourself. Why do you need to pay money to do it? Um, And so I think that when um, my coworker was like, here's this thing called the Tough Mudder. And I was like, oh, it's not just like running. You're also, I felt better about paying money to do it because you're like getting electrocuted and um, I guess like going over monkey bars and crawling through the mud and things like that. So there was, there was more to it. Um, and um, but yeah, I, that was definitely, I had never run the Tough Mudder was 10 miles long. And I remember being like, I don't know if I can even run 10 miles. So I started to like train for that. Um, and I was like, I've never like run that consecutive amount of my entire life. Um, but that was kind of where it all started. So you're up to that point, your, your running experience was like running the length of a soccer field probably. Yeah. And I ran in law school a little bit. I lived in Seattle and like, I lived by this place called Green Lake, which is like, it's like a 2.8 mile paved path around a lake. And I would run that and think that I, I would like give myself a pat on the back thinking that I had just run like for hours and hours. And I never actually realized it was only, this was like before GPS watches. I was like, oh, it's only like, it's less than three miles. But <laughs> that was a big run for me. Let me tell you. That's still sometimes a big run for me. So you don't feel bad about that running around a lake. You ran around a lake. No, it's funny because like I never like I don't like the entire idea of like mileage shaming, you know, when people are like, oh, you only ran blah, blah, blah. But when you get into the world of like ultras, you start to your vocabulary starts to be like, oh, it was only 10 miles or it was like only a half marathon. And then you're like. God, what have I become? It's just because of the people that you're around and what they do. Green Lake is also Jenny Jurek's start in running, basically. Oh, from, yeah. And she thought that was a big a big deal because her coworkers would run that around Green Lake at lunch. And she thought, wow, that's that's enormous. But no, she's no slouch either. So She's not um, too shabby. Yeah. How did your coworker, do you have any idea why she thought you might be interested in the Tough Mudder? Or were you just like... Were there other things that would have clued her into that you would be something into that? Or was she literally like, was the flyer just across from your desk? And <laughs> she was like, here you go. Like, yeah. What, what was the deal with that? No. Um, what I think what actually happened, my memory is kind of fuzzy because I was a first year associate at a law firm. And um, if anybody has ever been one of those at a large law firm, you realize you work so much that your brain is probably fried most of the time. But I think what happened was, um, I had a friend who did a warrior dash, which is like a really like short version of that. It's like a 5k. And I remember being like, oh, that looks fun. And mainly because like you get to drink beer and eat turkey legs at the end. And so I had told my coworker, I was like, hey, we should do this thing called warrior dash. And he was like, oh, no, no, no. Look at this thing called a tough mutter. And I was like, ooh, that's like three times the length. I don't think I can do that. So I'm pretty sure that's what happened. And yeah. Did you ever go back and do a warrior dash as like I a... actually never did a warrior dash and oh. now they no longer exist. So oh. well, 
that that ship has sailed i guess I, I i know but you know it's like if i count the number of obstacle races i've done in my life they all just kind of bleed together so i'll just pretend yeah how many obstacle races do you think you've done what's like the over under i think i counted at one point i think i've done probably between all the different variations and brands probably about like 70 or 80 which i mean it would have been more except that i was completely injured for like i mean because this is over 10 years and so and i was like completely injured for like four of those but yeah it was a fair amount i mean back in like 2013 2014 i was racing at least twice a month year round i'm currently at zero obstacle course (laughs) races brendan what's your number i'm i'm also at zero i believe yes (laughs) I don't know if we're, are we even allowed to host a jogging podcast? I guess we've both jogged. We could not call this the obstacle course race podcast. No. And you know, and most, I would say most people have not done them and most people do one and they're like, okay, that's cool. Now back to regular life. Um, But then there's just a few of us that then somehow got hooked on it. Um, But then, I mean, it was funny because I think what I realized is I started doing obstacle races because I, like really liked running up and down mountains, but I didn't know that you could just run up and down mountains without <laughs> like weird obstacles, obstacles and like without getting electrocuted and things like that. I was like, oh wait, there is a thing called racing where you're just like running the mountains and not doing all those weird things. So just dodging mountain lions and rattlesnakes, that kind of thing. But yeah, it's, it's way more infrequent than than uh, like during a tough mutter. And ideally, you never get electrocuted, um, but you but it's also possible. So you could find the cattle fences. You know, there's a number of electric ones around here. I'm sure I could put my hand on if I really miss doing a tough mutter. Electricity from the sky occasionally. Uh, yes. Happens. Yeah. Um, you weren't, as I understand it, you did not do well in the first race, right? You trained for quite a while, but got to it and were like, didn't really, you didn't crush it as much as you did later in your career. I couldn't even get off across the monkey bars, I remember, which is like kind of funny to think about. But if you've never done monkey bars when you're like, I think I was like 27 at the time. And I hadn't done, I was thinking in my mind like, oh, I used to do monkey bars all the time when I was six. (laughs) And then you realize you're, it's a little bit different, you know, 20 years later. Um, So yes, definitely did not crush um, but, uh, I think at that time I was like, man, that's embarrassing how bad I am. And so I kind of like use that as fuel to get better. Do you sort of DNF if you don't get across the monkey bars or what is the, what happens there? No, at this point, at this they start electrocuting you <laughs> yeah, because you do fall in mud or like, is it water? Over? It was okay. over water. Yeah. At this point, Tough Mudder wasn't even like timing people. There were no timing chips oh, okay. or anything like that. So it was kind of like. It was literally, you just fell in the water and then like continued. Now, now like certain, like Spartan Race has all these like penalties and things like that for like failures of obstacles and you do burpees and like, yeah. But at that point it was just really a free for all um, for sure. And then how many races in are you before you're like, you started to like take first place and start winning? So I did that first Tough mutter, and then I immediately decided that Uh, Since I had run 10 miles, I could then sign up for the 24-hour version of it. Um, I don't know how. I clearly, clearly made that jump, um, you know. Um, And so in that one, I got second. I got second for women, but I also clarify that 
only two women finish. So I technically also got last. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and then it, it was really like the following year that I just, I started like winning and, and doing really well. Was that because you knew how to run or was it because you trained really hard in the sort of off season or what do you attribute that the success to? Um, well, I, I started doing CrossFit, ah. which I have a lot of feelings about now, but it really helped me with my strength, um, in terms of like being able to do obstacles. I could get across monkey bars. Um, I also say in a very self-deprecating way that the sport was very new at the time. So I also maybe did so well because I just happened to be one of the first women in it. <laughs> So the competition is much, much stronger now for sure. Um, but I also like lucked out and kind of like getting in early and it's very much a sport of like a very steep learning curve that like you'll suck really bad at first when you first start, but then you just stick with it. And so I tell all these, like I have all these friends that are amazing runners, but they like go out, do an obstacle race, fail miserably. And they're like, I never want to do that again. I'm like, dude, you get a hang of the obstacles and you will crush this because you can run faster between them than anybody else. But it's like getting over your ego and then just like sticking with it. Huh. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I got to say, I think uh, in your defense, a lot of other people seem to be impressed with your ability to win these races at the, at the time. But I, would, I wouldn't say that you were... I don't know about your theory about like not very being a very deep field because it seemed like you seemed like a lot of other people were writing about your success. So, yeah, and I, I did well and I did well. I did well. Very. I think the big thing was like comparable to men. Like I was placing overall like very close to like the top men as well. Um, so I I use humor as a way to deflect clearly don't we all um but yes i i do more and more like appreciate that i actually you know did have a very long run of dominance in the sport for sure i mean you currently still have your day job you were like world champion in a lot of these like extreme success in the stuff magazine covers and things like that do you recall a moment at your job when you were just kind of like standing by the water cooler one day and somebody was like holy shit you I didn't know you were this person or, or was it kind of, was it sort of well known that you were, you were doing these things on your weekends or how did that come yeah. about? Well, you know, it's interesting because I actually tried to hide it at first because being at a very large law firm, like they kind of own your life. And I was very afraid to show this part because like, then I was afraid that they would be like, your entire life needs to be the law firm, you know? Um, but surprisingly, it's pretty hard to hide, like, because I would come in after races and, like, my feet would be so swollen that, like, all I could wear were, like, sandals, which was not up to dress code in the office. And, like, I was limping around and I was, like, bleeding from my knees. So it's kind of hard to hide after a while. Um, and, like, to my surprise, actually, like, you know, all of my coworkers in the firm were very supportive um, as they kind of, like, found out. Um, I think... It was like probably the first, the first magazine cover I was on, like the big one, like I was on Runner's World in like 2015 and I just started at Apple. And I, that's when I remember people at Apple being like, oh, and then connecting the dots. So it was kind of like a, maybe a slow burn. I don't know, but everyone was very supportive and always like super interested. Um, and so I appreciated that. 
that's yeah. Most offices you don't have people with a, a hobby that's that like big of a deal, you know, where they're like landing on a magazine cover. That's really interesting. Yeah, but I was very, very concerned for a long time, especially because like that they would think that like I wasn't interested in my job, and I was concerned when I was interviewing at places that they would like. Could you Google? Like, come on, like everybody who has ever like if you've ever interviewed somebody for a job, the first thing you do is you Google them to find out stuff about them. And if you Google me, it doesn't, the first thing that comes up isn't like Amelia Boone attorney. It's like half naked pictures of me crawling through mud, which I was very like nervous about in a professional setting because <laughs> it doesn't really scream attorney for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This is why I've never Googled Brendan because I'm just worried that I'm going to find half naked pictures of him crawling through mud. So I just figure it's safer to never go down that road. No, you're fine. Yeah. I want to ask, like, why law? Yeah. When did that become, I mean, as an undergrad, did you already kind of have your sights set on that? Or how did that become? I mean, it's interesting, right? Like, I, I totally get it and understand when you are in your first year and kind of you're already in that world where you're like, oh man, I don't know if I'm that psyched on people knowing about this other part of my life, but why law as a field and profession in the first place? Well, I was six years old and um, every day during lunch, my mother would fix me a turkey sandwich and we would sit and we would watch Perry Mason on TV. And I remember being like, man, this attorney, every time the person confesses on the stand, and it's amazing. So at six years old, I decided I wanted to be an attorney. Um, I clearly had a very good idea of how the law worked um, by watching <laughs> Perry Mason. And I just kind of stuck with that. I don't really think I ever second, I never questioned it. When I was in college, I actually also majored in anthropology. And for a split second, I contemplated um, going to Madagascar to study lemurs for the rest of my life. And then I decided law was a safer bet. Um, but than lemurs. <laughs> lemurs. My life would have been drastically different. I probably would have had much less time to run races if I was studying lemurs in Madagascar. Um, but yeah, I, I think it was one of those things that I just kind of fixated on from an early age and then never never swayed. And I thought I was going to be that person like pursuing justice. And now I write contracts. Um, <laughs> a different, a different kind of law. <laughs> Would you like to be in those sort of courtroom drama situations though? Are you like, I mean, I know a lot of lawyers are like, yeah, I don't really need to do that so much. And well, the funny thing is, is I really, that's what really what I wanted to do. Um, but I learned in law school that I'm actually really bad at thinking on my feet. I'm no, I'm good at if I like if I need to make an appellate argument, if I have time to prepare, if I have my notes, I'm great. If a witness answers a question in a way that throws me off, like I don't react well. And so it was much some people had a much more natural ability to kind of adapt to that. I've never been really good at that. So I just decided like it was kind of hard for me. I just realized it wasn't a skill set that I possessed. But the great thing about the law is that you kind of realize there are many different, once I realized like that's not my wheelhouse, what is? Um, and so I kind of went that direction. I had the same thing with um, basketball. 
Wait, what? Yeah, I just, just realized I wasn't going to be, I wasn't that good at it. And it's like, okay, well, I guess we're doing something else with life. Yeah. I was like, what does that have to do with thinking on your feet? But uh, oh, It doesn't. No. Yeah, it's completely irrelevant. <laughs> you had basketball dreams, though, early but, on. Yeah, oh, yeah, you weren't going to be the next Michael Jordan, and you just realized that. I'm sure it's a common theme of people of my generation. That, but, uh, but yeah, if you have all this massive success in, in obstacle races. What year did you move to the Bay Area? Is it 20? 2015, yeah. So then you get started somehow doing you decided to do an ultra marathon in 2016 is that right in in sort of the off season of obstacle racing yeah i had done one in 2015 in georgia and failed miserably at it but then yeah i decided i think it was like a break in early 2016 like the season had ended for obstacle racing so i'm like instead of rest like you should probably do at the end of the season i decided to run 100k (laughs) that's so was that was the first was the first ultra in Georgia was that over a hundred k or was it like yeah it was a hundred k it was the Georgia Death Race there oh, okay so it was more like seventy four miles or something like that and did you DNF that or I I finished third oh what a miserable failure <laughs> Jesus <laughs> but I also spent like. I like puked for half. The, it was one of those races where I was, I never like encountered aid stations before. And I was like, oh my God, I could just eat fistfuls of M&Ms and continue <laughs> without thinking that it's probably not a good idea to eat like a fistfuls of M&Ms and like a bacon sandwich at mile 15 because your stomach may not, <laughs> may may not, not hold down. up. Yeah, may right. not hold up. So some people would argue like, with that, but yeah. Some people can, but my gut was not trained for that at all. Do you remember what led you to that event itself? Yeah. So I had done 90 miles um, before it, at a 24-hour race. Um, but it's like 90 miles with obstacles. So it's like it's broken up a little bit more. But I think I the reason I chose it because it was called the Georgia Death Race. And I really liked the idea of the name Death Race. And um, the race director would let me in without having any other like qualifying races. So that was pretty much what it came down to. <laughs> it was like process of elimination because other races you were like, you needed to show your time for X, Y, and Z. And I didn't have that. So you're going from these, these things where you have to do all these other obstacles and upper body exercises and sort of transitioning towards, I just have to run. So your next race was the Sean O'Brien 100K in 2016, right? So second overall. So that was not a miserable failure. Was this the moment you were kind of like, you know, this might be a thing for me. Maybe I'll transition to this. Okay. What was that feeling like for you? It was amazing because for me, I think I had, you know, I had been doing obstacle racing for a few years and I think I had also let the pressure start to get to me. And like, it got to a point where I just was not having a great relationship with that sport. So, um, I was like, let's try another sport. Um, and, um, that's kind of a break. And I remember going out and running and uh, Sean O'Brien and I got second and I got a ticket to Western States, golden ticket to Western States through that. And so I was like, woo, I've made it. I've made it. This is the best day of my life and nothing can stop me now. And then eight weeks later, I broke my femur. So was it your training? You broke your femur or was it like a, like a fall? No, it was a stress fracture. Because I had no idea how to, I looked around and I saw every other ultra runner running, you know, hundred miles a week. And so I was like, oh, that's clearly what you do. Let's ignore the fact I was only running like 20 miles a week uh, beforehand. So 
I uh, bumped up very quickly. That is a big jump. I'm not a coach, but I feel like that's... Highly not recommended. <laughs> From 20 to 100 <laughs> miles a week. So you're you're doing these competitive things and obviously the races are a big motivation early on as you're starting to get into ultra running. And were you thinking, I'm going to compete? You know, like, am I, I'm going to see if I can podium at some of these events. Was that your motivation or were you really kind of just like, I just like being out here and they have bacon and M&Ms? And- <laughs> yeah, for me, honestly, it, it, it was really a way to be out there um, without as much pressure as I had felt around obstacle racing because no one knew who I was. I remember like, I remember Billy Yang was there um, like videoing that race, Sean O'Brien. And he was like, who are you? As I was like running through it. Cause at one point I was winning and, um, <laughs> and I just like, it was like the anonymity of it. And I just really liked kind of the, it felt much more laid back. People were wearing shirts. I always joke about obstacle racing, nobody's wearing shirts. And so I was like, <laughs> I was like, oh, people are wearing clothes. Um, and it just, it was a different vibe. And so I really, I didn't ever really set out to compete. It was more just of a way, a different break. And that's still, you know, like I think to this day is still kind of like the same for me, um, for sure. Stepping out of the spotlight and being able to just have fun and no expectations. Yeah. And I, I guess I've never, I was worried I would get to a point with ultra running where I would like feel the expectations. Perhaps it's been a few years of injuries that have kind of kept me to ever really building those expectations. <laughs> um, but I still like, like now to this day, and it's also probably just getting older too, that I just go out there and run because I love it. And I want to be able to be out there and do it, you know, and um, actually the best stories and the best races come from the times when you, everything goes wrong. And that's what's so cool about ultras, as you know, is that everything does go wrong. (laughs) Everything goes wrong. (laughs) This makes perfect sense when you're talking about like, do I feel myself getting sucked back into the pressure of needing to be super competitive and placing at a certain spot? And you could be in a recreation soccer league Right. I mean, but you chose to stay into something that's not terribly far removed from some of the longer obstacle races. So I don't know how to think about that or what you would have to say about that. In other words, I guess my only thing is you have not you aren't in a rec basketball league right now. I take it. I am not, though. I do have to say, as a side note, the most competitive league I ever played in was an attorney softball league. God forbid you play you play softball against a bunch of lawyers who just pull out the rule book at every time. Literally people like, like yelling at each other with the rule book. Um, Oh man. um, Oh America. No, I mean, I, (laughs) (laughs) um, no, I mean, I stuck, it's, it's pretty close. It is. It definitely is. But it's just because I realized that the portions of obstacle racing that I really liked were the running portions. Um, and, to this day, it's like still kind of the same for me, um, for sure. I mean, I think for me, what's interesting is I realize I still, I'm competitive. Would I like to go out and win races? Sure. Do I have to? No. That's what I've like realized at this point. It's like, I love, I love to compete, but it's no longer like the end all be all for me. Whereas it used to be. I think that's just a tough thing to modulate though. 
so I'm not speaking for you, but I think to be able to have both of those things and hold them sort of in a, a kind of balance is actually kind of impressive and probably not a static thing, right? It's like there will be this tension in a pole. And so, you know, good luck navigating that. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest, the amount of work that I've had to do around this to like be able to get to that spot has been, it's been many, many years of work for sure. It doesn't come overnight. <laughs> Errol the Rocket says something in one of these in a video about road races like marathons and, and stuff like that. If you fall down, people will just run past you because it's one less person they have to beat. But in ultra marathons, if you fall down, somebody's there to say, oh, are you OK? You know, like and help you up. And I think it it's his way of speaking about the community of ultra running, which is all these weird people who have the same screw loose. But also, also, there's just not that it's not that easy to compete in a a race that lasts, you know, ten or twenty hours or thirty hours. And I wonder what the if there are contrasts or, or similarities in the communities around obstacle racing versus ultra running in your experience. I, I definitely noticed that, like the shorter obstacle races, it is very much similar to a road race in terms of like. You're, it's short, hard, and fast, and you're in it to win it. The 24-hour ones tend to be feel more like ultras because it is very much like people helping each other over obstacles at 3 o'clock in the morning, you know, um, when, like, you've done 300 obstacles at this point and you're just drained, you know. I've never been so sapped my entire body. Versus, you know, like, ultra running, you run 100 miles and your legs cr are crushed, your upper body's ready to go, you know? Um, but so for a 24 hour obstacle race, it is very much, it's a similar atmosphere to ultras, which is why I've always liked the longer races because it just gives you time to like sit back and appreciate all the other people around you. I, there's a Billy Yang to do a video, uh, about you. I think it's called, is it 15 hours with Amelia Boone? He's the series of those. And one of the quotes from there that I like that you said is something to the effect of, I didn't transcribe this, but it's if I had to choose between training and not racing or racing and not training, I would absolutely choose just training. Can you speak a little bit about that, about where that comes from? Over the years, I've realized that the thing that I love about racing is the process to build for it. Um, so it's very much like the day in, day out and the anticipation. I've, I've learned this is so much in life is that the anticipation is actually always better than like an actual experience. And so training for me is the, that's an entire, you know, that's months of like looking forward to and having a goal. And so that keeps me going. And frankly, like I've realized this during this time during the pandemic, when there is no racing, like nothing about my training has changed. My motivation hasn't dropped. Like I still go out there every day and do what I do because I love to do it. Not because like there is something like an end goal at the end. And so I've always found that, you know, if you can find fulfillment in that process, then that's really like really the sweet spot for sure. Oh, I was just going to say the amount of, you know, sunsets you get in the mountains training for a very long race that you're, you're doing, you know, how many times are you out there for 20 miles, 30 miles, just trying to get ready for a long race and how many moments you get in exchange for that whatever belt buckle or whatever it is you're getting. It's, it's a good, I think it's a good comparison. It's a great quote. I'd love to think that maybe it's becoming more understood or maybe more mainstream or something that 
it really is about the process, like kind of always everything, because I'm actually not sure. I mean, Brendan talked about, you know, Michael Jordan earlier. Many of us did put him on a pedestal and we had no clue what he was doing day in and day out. It's just that guy won. He just won everything all the time. And I don't know if you guys have any sense of this, but I like the idea that it's like we actually maybe get it more now. Like, again, whether it's somebody who's trying to become a better guitarist or is in a band and would love to make it big, but are still grinding out, you know, Tuesday night shows at a local bar or something that it is like enjoy the day to day process of the work. I don't know. How, how do you think we're doing as a society, maybe, on the results versus process? You know, it's interesting because I actually used to think that everyone who said, oh, you just have to love the... Pro I was afraid of saying, like, love the process because I was like, oh, that's what people say who can't get the results, you know? <laughs> like, that's what people say who can't win. So they say it's all about the process. Maybe there is an aspect to that because I, but at the same time, like, I just don't look, I won for years and years. It never made me happy. Never made me happy. Like I kept trying to be like, if I just win this race, then that will be, then I will be happy. Then that will be enough. But it's like a moving goalpost and it just, it never, it just, it, it doesn't work. So I don't, maybe there are some people who truly do get so much joy out of a result and a win or something like that. But it's just, it's fleeting. It doesn't stay with you. And that's what I've learned. Yeah, it turns out you're actually a great person to <laughs> answer this question. <laughs> you're like, as someone who dominated all this stuff, let me tell you. And I'm like, oh, perfect. Thanks. Let me let me tell you all you non-winners out there. Who are you <laughs> right, right. I, every time I like answer a question like this, like I cringe because I'm like, let me tell you, as somebody who won for years and years and years, but it like it just and I think everybody has those experiences. Like we all have areas in our lives where we've done really well or we've like achieved very high things. But like, has that actually brought you any fulfillment? I don't know, you know, or long lasting fulfillment, I guess. I, I have a similar attack, like, right? Thing that I tell writing students that I have that, you know, the sure you want to, you know, have a lot of readers or win an award or whatever it is, but the magic part is when it's coming out, you know, the part you hate, you think you hate, you know, when you're trying to write and it's not going so well. But those moments that you get to spend actually putting it on paper is like the most magical time you'll have. And once you send it to an editor and they turn it back on you and say, you need to work on this more, you're like, fuck you. Or, well, maybe not. Maybe not everybody's like that, but but the magic part is the work that you're putting in and, and learning. So yeah, but I f I do feel like it's because I always thought that this was just like an athletic thing, and then I realized that it's actually it's probably true for writers because like if you have a New York Times bestseller, like then is that going to make you happy? No, because your next book then has to be on the New York Times bestseller list too, or otherwise you're a failure. And or if it's like you think about bands and putting out albums. It's like you people feel the need to continually top their previous success. And it's just unsustainable at some point, you know? So we've sort of said here, we're talking about, you know, it's not actually about the results, it's about the process. But I would love to hear you talk a little bit about sacrifices you've made, 
right? Because that's something where even if we're kind of all in agreement, like it is about the process, not the result, I think we're probably all of us in our different ways and probably everybody listening to this is still probably interested in excellence. And I don't actually think there is any version of excellence that doesn't involve some extent of sacrifice, varying degrees. So I know you've actually talked a lot about how you're like, if I wasn't racing at all, I would still want to be doing the training you're currently doing. So if you thought about the last say 10 years of your life, what would that look like to you in terms of like, these are the sacrifices I have made to be able to operate at a really high level? I think that the biggest thing has, the biggest thing that's taken a hit um, has really been interpersonal relationships, to be totally honest. Um, You know, and I, and, and that for me is, is a, probably a number of things um, also having to do with, you know, mental health issues as well. But just that I like I always put relationships and things to the side or I would engage in them if they were useful to me. Um, And I think that I also realized it was easier for me to like shut myself off from everybody else because then it freed up more time for just me. And so in a lot of ways, I think it was also very I was also very selfish um, for a number of years and then also like deluded myself into thinking that I didn't need anybody else in my life. So there are definitely like it's there's definite like sacrifices that I don't think I actually like intentionally made, but it was just kind of a byproduct of being so obsessed with, you know, like winning and racing and then also like holding down the lawyer job and then realizing that I was but like that left a hole in other areas because no one, here's the thing, you can't have it all. Like everyone who's like, eh, you can have everything. I'm like, no, you can't. Like something's going to fall by the wayside. And, you know, for me, it also ended up being mental health as well. And so I think that, you know, there's, there's a lot that goes along with being a high performer. Can we talk about the mental health stuff? Clearly, it's my favorite subject. Is is it? (laughs) I guess I'm going to ask you now about that. I mean, you have been remarkably candid and open about some of the stuff that you've been dealing with. And I've just been kind of curious, like when you kind of just said it's my favorite topic, on the one hand, I'm prepared to believe you. And on the other hand, I could see you being like, I'm fucking done talking about this. I did it. I yeah. said I said it. Can we like this yeah. isn't the only thing about my life. And so and frankly, that's probably another thing that there's ebb and flow and, you know, but I'm I am a little curious like today as we're talking, are you in the like no, actually that still is a bit of a favorite topic to because I'm still sort of processing this or are you like dude, I'm over this? No, I I hope to never be over it, to be completely honest, because I feel like if I'm ever over it, then that probably means that I'm backsliding into a bad space. You know, so I if anyone out there, you know, doesn't uh, people who don't know, you know, what I've talked about, it's like I have dealt with an eating disorder for 20 years of my life, you know, and um, so and that's the reason, you know, and it like I held it very close to my chest. I didn't talk about it for a really long time um, because it didn't seem to jive with the entire idea of being a, you know, a high performing athlete as well. But for me, I realized that so much of what I talked about 
to people for or like, you know, a good 10 years of my life when I was racing was missing this huge chunk. It actually felt very inauthentic to me to like be talking about all this stuff, but then know what was going on inside of me internally. And so it's now at this point where it's actually very therapeutic for me to kind of like reconcile all the parts of myself, you know, and it, and it, like you said, it will ebb and flow. Like there are some points in my life where I will feel more drawn to having, you know, being the person that's in eating disorder recovery. And there are more time parts of my life where I'm more drawn to being, you know, like the, the athlete or the attorney, but like, I'm learning that it doesn't have to be that I can like hold space for all of those. And that like, not just one has to be my identity. So you wrote a post on your blog that it later got picked up by outside about sort of kind of coming out about these things, like admitting, hey, I've had this eating disorder. In that year, have you had, are people reaching out to you saying, this is incredible? I thought, you know, it's so interesting to know someone who is, I look to, up to as superwoman is also human too. And I, I too have these struggles that I'm dealing with. And this, this helped me in that way. Has that happened a lot for you? Yeah, that's been, you know, the, I've been overwhelmed in like the best kind of way um, by the number of people who have reached out, you know, and shared and said, like, it just helps to know that I'm not alone. And I think that like that was because for so many years, I did feel very alone in it as well. And I, you know, as, as cliche as it can be, there's such power in knowing that everyone else, else around you is human as well. And I think honestly, one of the best compliments that I like got this past year was somebody who was like, I started following you because of your accomplishments as an athlete. He's like, but I stay because of you as a human, you know? And to me, that's like incredible because I do the same thing. Like the people that I follow and I cheer for, like they're, I, they're complex people. And I really, that's what I love about humans is how complex we are. And we all are screwed up in different ways and we all have our things. And like, I like seeing that gritty human side of it, you know, like not the shiny gloss that's out there, um, you know, that people are like, oh, you know, like Michael Jordan was the best basketball player of all time. And you're just like, but like, he's also a human, you know? And so it's like, I want to find out like the the shady underbelly of all your weaknesses and stuff like that, you know, and I, I like that. And so for me, it felt, it feels better for me to like own all parts of myself for sure. Yeah. But it's like, it's weird because I think at the same time, I also, when I started talking about it, I was like, my story is not unique, you know? And that's, that's the sad part is that like so many people struggle with eating disorders and not just eating disorders beyond that, you know, mental health issues and alcoholism and addiction and everything like that. And so part of me was like, I feel, I felt kind of gross that I was getting that much attention when so many other people have like the same struggles too. They just don't necessarily have as big of a platform or a name. And so that was probably kind of a hard part to reconcile too. Cause I was like, this is not like, I'm not, you know, like it, it was kind of a weird thing for me. If I can do some good in the world, like I want to be able to do that. And I can do that through mental health, you know, advocacy and awareness more than I can just standing on top of a podium for a race. When you were writing that post or, or the decision to write that and then also to put it in a public place where did it take you a solid month or do you remember what it was like in your head going, 
wow, once I flip this switch, you know, things are going to be different in some way and not knowing what would happen. Do you remember what was going through your head at that point? Yeah, I remember the entire time being like, I can't, if you do this, Amelia, you can't unring this bell, you know, you can't unring this bell. Um, and so I, you know, I sat with it, but it had been like, I have had many, many years of treatment and therapy to kind of come to that place of accepting and owning it and being ready like for that. And I remember actually when I hit publish on it and then just like immediately like broke down in tears and like sobbed for like an hour. But I think it was like necessary because it was like kind of this like catharsis of like being like, okay, this, this is me, you know? And I think as humans, we all have this like basic need to be like seen and understood and like heard. And that's not a bad thing. Like I always used to cringe at the idea of like sharing your story, quote unquote, because I was like, it seemed almost like I was like, people share their stories just because they want attention, blah, 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 blah. But that's not to me. I like, I don't see that anymore. I just see that like, fundamentally, we want to be understood as humans, you know, and I think that and by and we want to connect with other people and we connect through struggles. Like, why do you think you have why do you think like friends you make along the along the trail during an ultra like stay with you as friends for like a long time? Because you go through really dark shit together, you know, and like and that forms bonds. And so I think that that's like a way I think that for me it was like this entire process of like coming to that and coming into that and understanding that really what I wanted in life and what I want in life is connection to other people you know at some point in that writing you had to say I'm putting this out there will at least help one other person did you did that that thought had to come to you at some point right like yeah oh absolutely you know and because and I also realized how many other people like that I had looked up to who had helped me seek treatment by being vulnerable and talking about their own struggles. And so it kind of gave me permission to then step out of my life, you know, at 35 years old and go back into treatment. And so I was like, if I can pay that forward, I absolutely will, you know, um, for sure. Have you thought about or has anyone approached you about turning it into a book of some sort? I have thought about it. No one has approached me. Um, it has been actually, I, it, it's a bucket list thing for me to write, to write a book. I don't think I'm there. I feel like I still have a little, some more of the story left, you know? Um, but, and also books scare the shit out of me. <laughs> As they should. Very large undertaking, um, you know. Uh, but yeah, I, I, it's definitely something I would love to do. That's just a bunch of words. It's like writing a bunch of emails. That's true. Well, like, and I mean, I don't maybe, for, but like writing for me is such therapy, you know. Yeah. Like that's how I process everything is through writing, and so it's super helpful for my own. It's in a lot of ways. I think sharing was a little bit selfish on my own part because it was like my own form of being able to process things. So I'm curious how this past year has been. I mean, you've said really well, it sounds like there was, it was freeing. Um, this ability, you know, 
to connect and and share that vulnerability. I think many of us can relate to that experience, even if it's a conversation with a friend or two about something that's going on in your life. But do you think like hitting that publish button, did that do anything over the last year in terms of, I don't even know what one says, if you say, has it made the issue itself like easier or harder or actually like actually no difference on that front it's the same some days are easy some days are hard what's your experience been like i was super nervous about a lot of people knowing um because i remember the first time i went out to a group dinner and i was like oh my god everybody is going to watch me and the girl in eating disorder recovery and what does she put on her plate and that was like really scary for me um but, and so I think in some ways, like feeling like having, I had eyes on me, um, was a little bit unnerving, but you know, I've learned a lot in terms of like that, like how all of this like shows up for me through, through putting stuff out there. Um, like I, for instance, I learned that it's actually easier for me to be super vulnerable to strangers on the internet than it is like one-on-one -on -one in relationships. And that's something that I'm working at because like, Here's the thing. I can put something super vulnerable out on the internet. And like, if people want to unfollow me or walk away, like there, it doesn't matter. Like there's no, there's no skin in the game, but like when you're super vulnerable or like if I'm having a really bad day and my anxiety is out of like out of whack and I show that to somebody close in my life, like there's more at stake there. And so it's kind of, this entire year has been an interesting learning process about myself and like how I adapt to all of that for sure. I have just one big question that's totally unrelated, but about your choice of an elliptigo versus <laughs> a bicycle. So there's, a, for people who are unfamiliar with the area that around where you live, the lookout mountain, uh, the ride up lookout mountain road is pretty standard. Like people show up on road bikes and grind it out to the top of lookout mountain golden. And it's a nice view of the city and surrounding mountains. And, I think I saw on Twitter a few months ago, you were, I don't know how you mentioned this casually that you rode an elliptigo up Lookout Mountain. I was like, holy shit, that's, and I don't, I don't know how hard they are to ride. I don't know about the gearing yeah. or anything like that, but I thought, wow, that's pretty intense. Um, and I had a friend who's, um, whose father commuted to work from Parker to downtown Denver a couple days a week on an yeah. elliptigo. Um, he would oh, ride wow. it one way and then I think drive back he had it worked out somehow but he would commute on like the cherry creek bike path on on this thing can you talk about how that came about why why an elliptigo this is a great question brendan this is actually yeah this is um so i because of it i'm never gonna be a high mileage runner um but i wanted something that was like very similar to running that gave me an ability to explore it's like, for me, I, the elliptigo was like the, the motion is very similar to running versus like biking. Um, and, uh, you don't have to deal with weird, um, like saddle sores and chamois and like all that weird stuff with bikes. Um, and, uh, so I was cringed at first because I was like, oh my God, this looks probably really silly. But now I just don't care because I just have a blast. And so, yeah, I it was like, for me, it's like, it's like, how many cyclists can I pass going up lookout, you know, or I like do Golden Gate Canyon. And I actually really this summer, my plan is I um, want to do the road to Mount Evans is closed. So I want to do the ride up there, which is like 27 miles 
up and then 27 miles back. But yeah, I just, it, to me, it's like, I get so much joy out of it. And uh, it's just, it's a different, and it's a different way for me to like be out and explore and be in nature without pounding on my body. So like, but hiking is too slow though. Cause I'm like, you now have an elliptical mountain bike. Yes, I do have an elliptical mountain bike, which is really like, I tried to take that up North table. I'm not that good yet. I'm not good on a mountain bike in general. Um, but it's, uh, it's interesting because generally on a mountain bike, you want to sit to make sure like your wheels don't spin out. And this is a mountain bike without a seat. So, yeah. um, Huh. So I'm still learning that one for sure. <laughs> I'm looking at a photo of it right now and I'm going like, man, this thing would be terrifying going downhill like anything. Yeah. Tech- I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's not. I have no idea. I'm just going, wow. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I-, I was terrified the first time I rode the regular elliptigo down lookout. I was like, I'm going to die. I am literally going to die. And then I remember I hit, I looked at like my Strava and I had hit like 37 miles an hour on it. And I was like, I am standing up on like basically a glorified longboard with like handles like going down this mountain i was like oh my god <laughs> so i assume at at some point i'll get there with the mountain bike version of it as well just not 37 miles an hour but you know you guys just blew my mind as a mountain biker i kind of not sure i even knew this product existed which i feel embarrassed to say but now i'm intrigued and terrified it's very niche. The Elliptigo has eight gears and it's 44 pounds. So it's oh, not, wow. I mean, it's, yeah, it, you're, you're definitely, um, it's, it's tough. You know, everybody like, like has those pictures, like holding their bikes above their head. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I got to do that with the Elliptigo somehow, like getting that. I mean, 44 pounds isn't that bad, but just getting the sucker above my head would be very hard. It's awkward um, weight, right? It's like moving a couch. It's like, you can't really yeah. get under it. And <laughs> I know. <laughs> exactly but that's so now that's my goal i'm just gonna do all the big pad and do independence pass i want to do like everything around here um just on an elliptigo j-lo was just spotted riding one the other day and i would like to claim credit for that that i'm such a big influencer that j-lo yeah. saw me riding it and was like gotta have it so probably what happened she follows you on instagram yeah yeah she really likes all of my you know running photos when did you first get on one or learn about one or someone was like, hey, you should, you might like. I actually, so I had learned about them several years ago when I was in the Bay Area, but where I was living in San Jose was just not a good area. It would just been like start and stop in traffic all the time. And I just on the road. So I didn't have good roads for it. And then I moved out here and it was like, open country roads and i was like oh this would be perfect um so yeah it's been a few months and it's actually really hard learning curve at first just to even get on it and learn how to ride it you know now i can like take one hand off and not die so that's good because i have to i have to do turn signals so yeah (laughs) i'm looking at them now this is definitely not what i was imagining and we should definitely review these so maybe I'll, we'll bring you in as like a guest reviewer. Yes. Though the funniest thing was I, I I was riding up Lookout one day and this like Jeep full of probably like six college dudes rides by or like drives by. And they're like, that thing belongs in a gym. And I was like, oh, college students, I miss you. <laughs> 
what I love about it is the gym has always been full of these machines that are trying to replicate other modes of travel, you know, where it's like the stair stepper and the exercise, the stationary bike and the station. And now it's finally a piece of gym equipment has moved out of the gym and has turned into transportation. It's so bananas. It's like I never have. I mean, I'm building a home gym right now, which is kind of hard because there's no gym equipment to find anywhere. Um, but I was like, I don't. I was like, I canceled my gym membership. I was like, I don't think I'm ever going to want to need to go back at this point. You know, like, why would I sit there and ride an elliptical watching Fox News or CNN or whatever is on the TV at the time, you know, um, versus like actually riding up a mountain. So flying up mountains on the elliptical. Maybe I should bring it back to running in the in the closing minute before we let Amelia go after she's generously given us an hour and 20 minutes of goofing off. But I guess the question I like to ask people is, is how are you getting better at running, but not necessarily faster nowadays? As a person who's, I, I'm not looking at my faster days coming ahead of me. So I don't think, but I think about that a lot. And in what way you're, are you exploring more or are you just trying to have more fun with it and take it less seriously or? Yeah, I'm doing a lot right now. Um, I actually am getting better at running by running slower. Um, so, which I actually think moving to altitude was a good thing for me because it forced me to like slow down, um, and take my easy days, like a lot easier than, (laughs) than what I was doing previously. Um, and then I'm just running. I think also like I'm getting better at like different types of terrain and doing things outside of my comfort zone. Like I suck at technical, like technical descents, like rocks. I hate rocks. And that's like everything around here. So it's very humbling for me to like go out and like we ran the four pass loop last weekend and I was like bringing up the rear because like everyone else was just much better than me. And I'm just like, I'm just doing my thing. I'm learning this. Like I'm embracing that I'm not good at this at all right now, but it just kind of gives me something new and like a new challenge. Um, and so I just, I like to keep it fresh, you know, because running for me is always a method to explore and it's not about, it's never been about paces or times or anything like that for me. Like I frankly, like if I could find a way just to hide the pace on my watch, I would, because I don't care about it. You know, there's some terrain in those Rocky mountains that have lots of rocks. There's, there's way more, a lot of rocks to see in your future there. The first time I ran, did Green Mountain and Box of Rocks Trail, I was like, oh, this is aptly named. All these fucking rocks everywhere. It's like literally just like rocks. I have no shit run a thousand miles at that place. And I don't understand why anyone runs or rides that trail, that particular trail. I mean, there's a lot of shitty stuff about Green Mountain, like the shooting range, the multiple freeways. I see people riding up it and like, I'm like, what are you doing? Why don't you just like stay home? That's so... I've only, I've only run it once and once was enough for me and I got on an accident and I was like, yep, never doing this one again. <laughs> there is some, there is some romance to that place just because I love uh, running up the back at night sometimes and you pop up and you can see the entire city and you know, it's really cool, but yeah, no way. That would really require me to stay up past sunset which generally doesn't happen. So, but I'm a sunrise person. So, you know what? In December, it's going to be awesome at like 6 p.m. That is, that is true. It. Actually, that is true. During the winter, I will see the sunsets. But this time of year, I'm starting to see them again. But there was a while when they were like 9:30 that I was like, nope, going to bed. It's light outside. <laughs> so, what is the schedule? You're trying to go to bed by when? You're getting up when? 
Uh, I am, God, this is kind of embarrassing, but I'm generally in bed by like 8.30, 9 at the latest. I wake up about 4 a.m. Um, but that is, I could sleep in a bit later now since I don't have a commute, but that's just so many years of being like, I need to be in the office. I need to get my training in and be in the office by 7.30. And like, I just can't, it's hard for the body to then like, adjust off of that like I'll go I could like stay up like the other weekend I went to bed at midnight which was like hasn't happened in years and I still woke up at 4 a.m and I was like god damn it (laughs) you know so that's I've always been a morning person always I love the sunrises in my house actually I have like epic sunrise view so that that is a that's this clutch for me my dad was up at 5 a.m. for 43 straight years, six days a week in, in retirement. I thought he would have some issues um, transitioning, but now he's like, it's hard to get him out of bed by 9 a.m. It's fantastic. So it is possible. If- uh, my parents have done the same thing after they retired. They're, they both like sleep into like 7.30 or something. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Mom and dad going crazy. You missed half the yeah. day. <laughs> Yeah, so maybe I'll get there one day. <laughs> I am thrilled with the range of topics we've covered <laughs> from how bad or good it is to be death by mountain lion. I mean, I feel like we, we didn't start really... off on a very dark note, you know? Yeah, so <laughs> this is, I feel like we've really covered all the notes. I actually really love too that we snuck in on a running podcast brendan yelling at people for going up box of rocks and encouraging them to just stay home so i I never i never actually did that they were mountain bikers it was the mountain bikers all right yeah all right and we got a good 20 minutes talking about elliptigos so i i'm i think we've done good work here amelia thanks so much for taking the time if you have time this summer you should check out i think the high lonesome loop and the indian peaks would be if you like four pass loop it's sort of it's sort of a uh, working person's front range. Uh, it's a, it's a wonderful loop. I shouldn't compare it to the four pass loop, but it's, no, people have told me about it, I think. So yeah, yeah, that's definitely on, I, you know, given that there, I actually kind of like that there are no races because it's like adventure time. So it's like, let's go just create, you know, that's everyone's doing FKTs right now. So I'm like, yeah, go on an adventure. Yeah. You can just make up an FKT. As oh, we, we totally. talked to Buzz Burrell. It's if you're the first one to do it, it's automatically an FKT. So right. like, you probably have the FKT on the Elliptigo up Lookout Mountain, right. actually. I, I, I'm sure I do. It's just I need Strava to make a separate activity for Elliptigo because I'm I'm grouped in with cyclists. And so if I can get like top 1000 in cyclists, then I'm I'm doing good. But yeah, I feel like you so. could petition Buzz for that for the Elliptigo. FKT, I feel like. I live to go FKT. <laughs> I feel like he would this be This is going to be the next, we just figured out like your next five years of just crushing, well, setting world records on elliptigos. So it's funny because I actually had the thought earlier this year, I was like, I wonder, because you know how everybody runs across the US? I was like, I wonder if anyone has elliptigoed across the US. Ah. Google told me lots of people have. So it just, <laughs> it kind of deflated yeah it doesn't so mean like, you can't do it though like that you, is I mean, true the people have done somebody told me about this thing that you illegally attach to a single railroad track that's like a bicycle that yeah this is when we were biking across the country this guy told me about it and he said i want to do that and i was like that sounds awful but right go for it Wait, but people so probably have what can you say more you do what to a railroad track 
it's like a bicycle powered thing that you clip to a single railroad track. So it has like railroad wheels, two railroad wheels on it. And it's like, I can't imagine that being that fun, but. No, no. If anything, I was thinking about just taking, taking 70 all the way across Colorado, but I don't want to be on a freeway for that long. I might love to go across Colorado. I just need to find different street or different roads that are not a major interstate. So. Yeah, the ton- the tunnel would be bad news there, but uh, <laughs> the world is your oyster. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Amelia, thanks so much. This has really been fun and great to hear more about your whole story and where you've been and where you're headed. And yeah, really appreciate the time. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Amelia and Brendan for the great conversation. And if you are enjoying these Off the Couch episodes, and I mean, I'm sorry, people, but how could you not? We just introduced you to Elliptigos, and you got to hear Amelia and Brendan be wrong about mountain lion attacks. So, you know... Anyway, if you are enjoying these episodes, we would very much appreciate it if you would take 30 seconds to leave us a nice little rating or review in Apple Podcasts. You do your part, we'll keep doing our part, then we'll all be happy and smiley. So thanks in advance for that. Now, I also want to say thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from all of us here in Crested Butte, Colorado, we hope that you are doing well. And until next time, please be safe, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, please keep moving forward, and we will talk to you again next week.